Not long ago, my family experienced a disaster. While cooking dinner, some cooking oil caught fire and got into the hood vent above the stove, spreading smoke, but thankfully, not much in the way of flames throughout the house. Although relatively minor compared to what it could have been, it was nevertheless important that we reconstruct our kitchen. This involved replacing the stove and obviously the hood vent and a ceiling light fixture, along with a few cabinet doors. We also had to clean and repaint the ceiling and walls and refinish several of the kitchen cabinets. It took a lot of work, but eventually we actually had what was, in some ways, a better kitchen than we had before. We replaced the stove with a nicer model. We tiled the wall behind the stove, and the hood vent, while of the same style that was there previously, was rewired to modern code. Also, we had to replace the kitchen sink faucet, and we purchased a model more to our liking. So, although the experience was not one that we would want to wish on anyone, the reconstructed kitchen was better than before in some respects. Hi, I'm Charles McCloskey, and this is Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about history that you don't often learn about in school. In this episode, I want to talk about reconstruction. Often defined as the period between the end of the war and 1877, Reconstruction is an era that, to me, seems to be given less than its due when talking about American history. For this reason, if for no other, it's an ideal topic for Shotguns and Sugar. Parenthetically, this is the final episode that deals with international interest in the American Civil War. As I've noted before, this subject is based on my U.S. history lecture series that I developed while on the history faculty of several community colleges and a university. As with the other podcasts in this series, I've used a number of quality sources to prepare this information. These sources include a 2006 article in the OAH Magazine of History by Edward L. Ayers titled The American Civil War, Emancipation, and Reconstruction on the World Stage. A 2011 article by Megan Gambino in the Smithsonian titled The Unknown Contributions of Brits in the American Civil War. Other sources I've used include a website developed by Henry A. Wynick and a book by Don H. Doyle titled, in part, The Cause of All Nations, along with another book edited by David T. Gleason and Simon Lewis titled, in part, Civil War is a Global Conflict. But probably my most important source for this podcast was Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863-1877. to Full citations of these works, along with other sources I used to develop this podcast, can be found on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Let's start with a bit of history about Reconstruction itself. The idea of Reconstruction was that the rebelling Confederate states, like my kitchen, needed to be rebuilt or reconstructed. Before the war, the South had contributed significantly to the overall American culture and society with their own distinctive culture. Economically, the cotton and tobacco and sugar produced in the South drove northern mills and factories, contributing to the overall economics of the country. The South also contributed to America's national politics. Nine of the first 15 presidents, or 60% of them, were from southern states. Number 16, Abraham Lincoln, was elected from Illinois, but was born and raised in Kentucky, a southern slave-holding state. Of the 80 people who had held the position of president pro tem of the Senate, before the start of the war, 56, or 70%, were from slave-holding states. The top three states to have their senator elected to this position— a total of 28 out of the 80 terms, were, in order, South Carolina, Alabama, and Virginia, all Confederate states. Of the 39 speakers of the House, 25, or 64% of them, were from southern states. However, reconstructing the South to be an image of itself before the war was impossible. Slavery, the foundation of southern culture and economy, was gone. 
Also, the loss of something in the area of one million Southerners, 400,000 to death and 600,000 to disability, hurt the ability of the region to reestablish its former economy. Added to this challenge was the need to restructure the Southern agricultural base, which made up something between 80 and 90 percent of the Southern economy before the war. These three reasons made it impossible to actually reconstruct or restore what was there before. Instead, like my kitchen, it required some modification, some updating as part of its reconstruction. When reconstruction actually began is open to discussion. Eric Fauner, a well-known student of American history and more particularly of reconstruction, argues that reconstruction actually began in 1861 when a group opposed to Virginia's secession repudiated the state's action and formed their own state government. A July 4, 1863 referendum prohibiting slavery in the western side of the state was the final act needed to admit these anti-rebel rebels and the land they controlled as the nation's 35th state. The referendum also made West Virginia the first southern state to abolish slavery. Others trace its origin to the same period, but to the development of Union contraband camps that developed about a month after the outbreak of the war. As I discussed in my podcast on the Civil War on the World Stage, the first slaves to escape during the war were Shepard Mallory, Frank Baker, and James Townsend. They sought protection at Fort Monroe, a Union camp in Virginia. While not acknowledging them as freed slaves, the Union commander declared they were property of the Southern combatants, and therefore the Union was obliged to take them as contraband of war. The term stuck, and hundreds of contraband camps were established as Union force took control of parts of the South. During most of the war, management of these camps nominally fell on the department commanders, who used decommissioned tents to house the refugees. Still others argue that Reconstruction began with the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863. As I discussed in the podcast on slavery, war, and economics and the Civil War on the World Stage, this proclamation had an important military component in that it sought to remove a significant part of the Southern logistical activities. Southern slaves would no longer be around to take care of planting and growing consumable crops needed for survival. But it also destroyed the area's 200-plus years old social structure. Southern social structure was heavily aristocratic in nature, and that in some ways harkened back to the role of the European medieval barons and dukes. The plantation owners forming a wealthy upper class that controlled the land and the serfs, or in the case of the South, the slaves, who worked the land and did the bidding of the landowners. Removing slavery, the foundation of Southern aristocratic society, essentially destroyed the pre-war Southern society, if not its culture. The proclamation also changed the focus of the war. No longer was it simply to preserve the Union, but it was now to free the slaves. This shift caused no little consternation in the South, but it also made it really, really difficult for European countries, whose general population was strongly anti-slavery, to endorse the Confederacy. From the perspective of wartime reconstruction, the Emancipation Proclamation's most immediate effect was to take the residents of the contraband camps out of legal limbo. They were no longer captured property, they were free people. This change in status permitted the Army to enlist former slaves, permitting it to place more trained Army personnel on the front lines while having the newly enlisted former slaves handle more of the logistical duties. Still others place it later in 1863, when Abraham Lincoln proposed a formal plan for reconstructing the South. 
His timing was well thought out. In September of 1862, just a few months before Lincoln announced his plan for Southern Reconstruction, the North was victorious in the Battle of Antietam, considered one of the bloodiest battles of the war. The battle opened the door to Lincoln's issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863, just about seven months later. In July of 1863, George Meade's Army of the Potomac, that's the Union Army for those of you who are not familiar with Civil War terminology, destroyed about one quarter of Lee's Confederate Army at Gettysburg, forcing Lee into a defensive posture that would last the remainder of the war. That same day, Grant took Vicksburg, cutting the South in half and completing the outline of the Anaconda Plan that General Winfield Scott developed at the beginning of the war as the path to Union victory. Between the Emancipation Proclamation and the Union victories at Antietam, Gettysburg, and Vicksburg, the Confederacy's chances of gaining recognition from European countries basically evaporated. So by the fall of 1863, it was time for the Union to provide an olive branch to the South. Enter Lincoln's plan for Reconstruction, the first of three plans that gave a framework to post-Civil War Reconstruction. Lincoln's plan consisted of two main parts. He proposed that amnesty would be granted to all but a few Confederate leaders who took loyalty oath to the United States. This oath would include a pledge to obey all federal laws related to slavery, or more particularly, to the elimination of slavery. Also, any state where one-tenth of the number of voters who voted in the 1860 election had taken the oath could reconstitute its government, form a new constitution, and send representatives to Washington. These three ideas, the creation of West Virginia, the development and management of the contraband camps, and Lincoln's original Reconstruction Plan constitute a period often identified as wartime Reconstruction. But in some ways, Lincoln's plan is one designed to restore a pre-war political structure, not bring it up to date. His plan met with huge, huge opposition in Congress. The radical Republicans who controlled the legislative branch complained that it was way too lenient and that it had provided no protection for the newly freed slaves. While rejecting Lincoln's plan, they put forward their own. Known as the Wade-Davis Bill, they required that states had to have a majority of voters take the loyalty oath before the state could reconstitute its government. They also required that each state must formally abolish slavery and prohibit officials of the former Confederacy from participating in the new government. Lincoln disliked their plan enough to veto it, providing a political vacuum in the Reconstruction debate. This situation continued until after the presidential election in the fall of 1864. This election gave Lincoln a landslide victory, over 500,000 more popular votes than the opposition, and 212 out of 233 votes in the Electoral College. That's a 91% of the Electoral College that voted for Lincoln. Lincoln's victory gave him an immediate mandate from the public to pursue the war. It also gave him so much political capital that Congress could do little but go along with his Reconstruction plan. Therefore, rebelling states under Union control began to work through the process of applying for readmission. In fact, less than a month into Johnson's administration, Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Virginia were all restored to their pre-war status. Lincoln's second inauguration took place on March 4, 1865. Just 41 days later, his power evaporated when John Wilkes Booth shot him at Ford's Theater. Lincoln's replacement was his brand-new vice president, Andrew Johnson, a Democrat slaveholder from a southern state, Tennessee. 
Indeed, part of the reason Lincoln had selected him was to help smooth reconstruction and provide some reassurance to the South as the war wound down. However, his past made him someone the radical Republicans in Congress disliked from the outset. He was everything that they opposed. While Congress was out of session between March and December of 1865, President Johnson upset the radical Republicans by implementing his own ideas of Reconstruction. Under his plan, pardons were granted, with some exceptions, to former Confederates. The returning states also were authorized to revise their constitutions to, and I quote, restore said state to its constitutional relations to the federal government and to present such a republican form of state government as will entitle the state to the guarantee of the United States, therefore, and its people to protection by the United States against invasion, insurrection, and domestic violence. Like Lincoln, his plan was centered on restoring the South to its pre-war political structure with just a few changes. He sought to restructure the aristocratic society of the antebellum period with a more egalitarian system that gave power to the yeoman farmer without giving political strength to the freed slaves. Also, his lenient policies towards the Confederate veterans sought to strengthen Johnson's political posture as grateful Southerners, regardless of their future party affiliation, would lean towards Johnson in future elections, thereby giving greater emphasis to unifying the country over continued sectionalism, as well as strengthening Johnson's position as a future presidential candidate. He implemented his plan while Congress was out of session campaigning for the midterm elections. The pardons he issued to thousands of Confederates permitted former Confederate leaders to participate in the political process and take actions that hurt the now freed slaves' ability to take their place in American societies as equals to Southern whites. He also readmitted the previously forementioned states. At the same time Johnson was implementing his plan, the midterm congressional election saw the radical Republicans obtain a two-thirds or greater majority of both houses of Congress, positioning them politically to promote their own Reconstruction plan. Their plan was based on three guiding principles. First, they believed that, having freed the slaves, the federal government was responsible for helping them transition into that of productive, involved American citizens. The second guiding principle was political. Like all political parties, the radical Republicans wanted to ensure their party would retain its power for many years into the future. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 passed over Johnson's veto, work towards both of these principles. The Civil Rights Act made everyone except those in prison and Native Americans who did not pay taxes citizens of the United States. Prior to this act, the idea of defining citizenship was not much of a concern in the United States. If you were an immigrant, the moment you set foot on land in the United States, you could vote and take care of other responsibilities reserved to citizens. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 was the first real effort that I'm aware of that sought to define the rights of citizenship in the United States. It stated that anyone born in the United States, regardless of race or color, and regardless of any previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude, were citizens, and as citizens had the right to make and enforce contracts, sue, be parties to legal proceedings, 
give evidence, inherent, purchase, lease, hold and convey real and personal property, and to any other law as is enjoyed by white citizens. That was a quote, folks. I just finished it. The 15th Amendment, enacted two years later, included voting for adult males as an additional right of citizenship. Certainly, the Republicans expected freed black males to support their party over the Democrats who went to war to keep them in bondage. Their efforts in this area were amazingly successful. Even after Reconstruction ended, the Republicans held on to the presidency and the South for decades. Between James Buchanan, who Lincoln replaced in 1860, and 1932, when Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected president, the Democratic Party only held the presidency for four terms. Two by Grover Cleveland, who served from 1885 to 1889, and again from 1893 to 1897 and Woodrow Wilson, who served two back-to-back -back terms between 1913 and 1921. In contrast, the Republicans held the office for nine terms, and the National Union Party, who elected Lincoln to his second term, held the office once. I think that's the only instance where a third-party candidate obtained the office of president. The third motivation for radical Reconstruction was simply revenge. Too many of Congress's members lost brothers, fathers, nephews, cousins, and sons to war. The failure to provide cotton and other goods to northern factories and ship finished goods to southern merchants also dealt a severe blow to the northern economy. These issues, the loss in northern lives and livelihoods, angered radical Republicans and placed Reconstruction on the path to a program to humiliate the South as much as possible while still striving to rebuild it economically. The goals of the Radical Reconstruction were large. They sought to create freedom for the newly emancipated African-American population, including property rights, citizenship, dignity, and equality before the law. To accomplish this, they advocated successfully at the outset for immediate social and economic equality for African-Americans. I say successfully because many African-American legislatures and leaders participated in the process as state legislators. The period of Congressional Reconstruction, as it is often called, was formalized in 1867 with the enactment of several bills, all of which had to be overrode after Johnson vetoed them. The most important of these was the Reconstruction Act of 1867. It became law on March 2nd. The act established five military districts that were responsible for managing the old Confederacy, except for Tennessee until the states were deemed compliant with congressional mandates. These mandates included writing a new constitution that outlawed slavery and endorsed the 13th and 14th Amendments. However, once the states met these criteria, the military remained in the South to provide continued protections, both legal and personal, to both the freed slaves and the whites who sought to assist them. One of the agencies they protected was the Freedmen's Bureau. As I discussed in the podcast on Reconstruction on the World Stage, the Freedmen's Bureau, formerly known as the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, was established in the spring of 1865 by congressional action and had its duties expanded in 1866. It was an outgrowth of the contraband camps that had sprung up during the war. This bureau provided formerly enslaved persons with food and shelter and helped to negotiate wages as the economy changed over from a slave system to a free labor market. It also worked alongside private groups and religious organizations like the American Missionary Association to organize and staff schools for freedmen and their families. 
some of the historically black colleges that operate today, including Washington, D.C.'s Howard University and Nashville, Tennessee's Fisk University, both started as Freedmen schools. Virginia Beach, Virginia's Hampton University opened its doors as part of the American Missionary Association's efforts to provide educational services to the recently freed slaves after the war. The Freedmen's Bureau was one of, if not the first, federal efforts to administer any sort of a welfare program, so both Congress and the Bureau were working blind. The Bureau created precedent in the operation of refugee camp management, job, food distribution, medical care, and land reform programs. Given this situation, it's understandable that Congress, in this politically stressful time, failed to adequately fund the Bureau. Given the limited resources and the constant threat the Bureau workers were under for their efforts in the South, it's entirely understandable that the Bureau failed to meet their goals. However, their efforts did provide needed encouragement and maintain life while helping thousands of former slaves get their feet firmly planted in freedom before the Freedmen's Bureau was closed in 1872. Throughout most of the war, Britain responded to perceived similarities between the Southern aristocratic society and that of Britain's. In this regards, think of the discussion in another podcast on the concept of ethnic unity as a Southern tool to garner European support. During Reconstruction, this same attitude colored Britain's view of American internal affairs. Indeed, one commentator quoted in the Daily Recorder that the southern states, with few exceptions, have been cruelly and abominably misgoverned under the wretched conditions set up under the Federal Reconstruction Act. However, this position was tempered when southern states repudiated the bonded indebtedness that they occurred from British banks, both before and during the Civil War a condition Congress placed on them as part of those acts establishing radical reconstruction. As I point out in other podcasts, this issue placed British financial institutions directly in opposition to making loans to the South, a situation that had huge financial long and short-term repercussions. Short-term, the repudiations forced Southerners to rely on Northern finances, which led to accusations that the North was bleeding the South financially. Long-term, it lengthened the Southern recovery from the war. How long-term? Well, a 1940 article in the Journal of British Studies suggested that British banks were still waiting for payment on their past debts from the South. Reaction to the radical Republican version of Reconstruction saw the growth of violent hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan and other vigilante justice in murderous night rides intended to frighten and terrorize African Americans and their Republican supporters. By the way, in his autobiography, Booker T. Washington points out that these activities were an outgrowth of pre-war patrols that Southern whites carried out to prevent slave revolts. These efforts also saw the growth of black codes in Southern states to prevent African Americans from autonomy of movement, residence, or employment. Reconstruction also had a significant impact on women's position in Southern society. Because so many Southern men had been lost due to death or debilitating physical or mental injuries, Southern women were forced out of their roles as keepers of home and hearth into roles previously reserved for the Southern gentlemen. These women redefined the concept of the Southern lady from one of dependence and submissiveness to one of personal strength and fortitude that emphasized self-reliance and confidence in both the personal and professional spheres. In my opinion, the redefined Southern lady contributed substantially to the success of the women's suffrage movement. The activities of these women, 
particularly those who sought to justify the loss of loved ones, husband, father, brother, or son, saw the evolution of a narrative that focused on the war as a struggle to preserve the chivalrous Southern society in the face of an increasingly aggressive Northern society that was based on growth, change, and development. Known as the lost cause narrative, this concept evolved into a false storyline that as a result of the war and reconstruction, the South had been humiliated by the Union and forced to endure subjugation, not only to the soldiers stationed in the South, but also from their African-American neighbors. The underlying message in films like Birth of a Nation, first distributed in 1915, and the revisionist Gone with the Wind, which premiered in 1939, condemned Reconstruction as a social experiment gone too far, a mistake in judgment due to the over-exuberance of radical Republican leaders. This story was largely supported in the North, supported but not necessarily accepted, to help the South rejoin the Union both socially and emotionally. It became the basis for explaining much of the Civil War clear into the 1970s. As a high school student during this period, I was taught the lost cause narrative. Yet other Southerners looked upon Appomattox not as the end of the war, but as more of a need to change their strategy. To some in the South, the Civil War demonstrated that the only way the South could defeat the North was to beat them at their own game. One such intellectual was Henry Grady. On March 14, 1874, Three years before the end of Reconstruction, Grady, who was then editor of the Atlanta Daily Herald, wrote of the need to meld the economic structure of the North with the traditional Southern society to create a new South. His vision of the South was one that would leave its agricultural roots and shift, like the North, to a more industrial base. Yet the presidential election of 1876 was pivotal for Reconstruction and for the nation. It pitted Republican Rutherford B. Hayes against Democrat Samuel Tilden. As the states submitted their returns to Congress for certification, as required under the Constitution, the representatives of the two parties had different calculations for the states of Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, and Oregon. In response to these disputes, Congress established a special commission composed of members of the House, Senate, and Supreme Court. Over the next month, the commission met 15 times in an effort to resolve the dispute. In what has become known as the Compromise of 1877, the disputed votes were awarded to Rutherford B. Hayes, who became the nation's 19th president. Though unwritten, the compromise consisted of five parts. First and foremost, all remaining military forces were to be removed from the old Confederacy. Second, Republican Hayes would anoint at least one Democrat to his cabinet. Third, a second transcontinental railroad would be built connecting the South to California through Texas. Fourth, the president would support legislation to help industrialize the South. Remember Grady's New South. And finally, the South would be permitted to deal with the former slaves without Northern interference. Most historians marked this compromise as the end of Reconstruction. The Compromise permitted Southerners to reestablish a system of racism and segregation that systematically excluded African Americans from political and economic prosperity. The railroad networks that expanded through the South during the last half of the 1800s created an interdependent economy. Northern financial systems provided capital to invest in innovative technology and communication inventions. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, most historians agreed that the Civil War was something which could have been avoided. 
Throughout the 1940s and 50s, the Civil War was like World War II, a conflict which destroyed tyranny and promoted democracy. In the 2000s, the Civil War has come to have contradictory meanings, unfulfilled hopes, and, particularly when the failed reconstruction is factored in, many, many unintended consequences. One wonders, with the views of the world on the war, the influence it may have had on more modern wars. Efforts to reconstruct devastated countries after both world wars, along with other more modern wars. These are questions that require further research and further discussion before any definitive conclusions can be drawn, but they are interesting at this point to speculate about. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune in to future broadcasts about the wonders of history.